Hello, I'm Ud Gallifrey. I'm Sage Murray. And I'm Leon Felger. And we are the Occulte Veritatis Podcast. We talk about anything that intrigues, horrifies, or interests us, including true crime. Serial killers. Military conspiracies. <laughs> and other mysteries and horrors of reality. So get cozy with your favorite alcoholic beverage. Oh, Smoke a joint or two. Only if it's legally purchased medicinal marijuana, of course. And tune in. We would love to have you. You would. You can find all of our links, all of the ways you can subscribe, and the rest of our bullshit at www.ovpod.ca. We hope you listen in soon. This is Murderous Miners, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Miners, Killer Kids. Episode number five. Who's watching the baby? Hey, Murderous Miners listeners, just two quick notes before we get started. Our cases this week involve the death of infants. As always, I keep the intense details minimal. I want to bring true stories to my listeners, not offend or horrify you guys, so I just wanted to let you know that beforehand. Also, one of the killer kids in this episode was just so young She was never identified publicly, but the perpetrator in the other case, while only a year different in age, did eventually have her identity revealed under circumstances which you will soon learn. Thanks for listening, guys. And in 2018, let's make sure that the firearms in our homes are secure and that we remain keenly aware of just who we leave our children with. Some tragedies certainly do seem to be preventable. Part 1. Zuri Whitehead Trina Whitehead of Wycliffe, Ohio, described her two-month-old daughter Zuri Michaela Whitehead as the most perfect baby ever, who just wanted to be held and loved. Zuri translates to beautiful in Swahili, and she joined three older siblings to round out this young family. Mothers of young families often befriend one another, and such was the case for Trina and a co-worker whom she had known for going on five years. This friend had an 11-year-old daughter, and around 9.30 p.m. on February 5, 2015, they called Trina to see if they could keep baby Zuri overnight. Her friend's daughter had suggested it as a nice break for the new mom to give her a so-called night off from having an infant. Although reluctant at first, Trina later says that they were so excited and insistent at their idea, she eventually gave in and got the baby ready. She definitely trusted her friend. The two were already out and about near the Whitehead's home, so it wasn't long before the baby was picked up and taken over to Trina's friend's house for a sleepover. Her friend lived on the 1500 block of Ridgewick Drive with her 11-year-old daughter, And it's there that around 3.30 a.m. of February 6, 2015, she woke on the couch to see her daughter holding Zuri, whose head was visibly swollen and bloodied. 
She was struggling to breathe and seemed to want to open her eyes, but couldn't. Baby Zuri was rushed to West Hospital by ambulance and was quickly airlifted to Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, where she underwent surgery, succumbing to her injuries before surgeons could repair the massive damage. Those injuries included massive brain injuries sustained by repeated blows, liver, kidney, and spleen damage. There were multiple visceral injuries caused by blunt force trauma of the head, neck, torso, arms, and legs. The 11-year-old daughter of Trina Whitehead's self-proclaimed best friend was arrested and charged with murder. Wycliffe Police Chief Randy Ice said during a press conference following her arrest that the suspect showed no remorse whatsoever. He wasn't sure she had appreciated the full gravity of what she had done. He described the scene as the most disturbing he had seen in his 30-year career and stated that the child had no history of mental illness, although this would later be glaringly disproved. The department said they were looking into providing counseling for the first responders. The suspect's mother, Trina's former co-worker and now best friend, did call to tell Trina that she was so sorry for what happened and that she couldn't believe what was going on. She said her heart was broken. Trina Whitehood states that she always thought of the 11-year-old suspect as a sweet girl and trusted them enough to have let her 7- and 8-year-old daughters stay over for sleepovers in the past with no issues. The two had met while working together at a medical clinic back in 2008, and Trina said she definitely trusted her. She never thought her baby would be put in harm's way considering their relationship and the fact that they were so adamant she'd get some uninterrupted rest and maybe a bit of undistracted time spent with her older kids. She tried to shelter her older children from the horrific details of what happened to their adorable baby sister, but Trina said that her 7- and 4-year-old would run and kiss the TV if baby Zuri's picture was shown on the news. Three days later, on February 9, 2015, the 11-year-old suspect pled not guilty at Lake County Juvenile Court. A hearing to determine whether the child was mentally competent to stand trial took place on July 9, 2015, with the child's suspect having been in custody of family services since her arrest five months earlier, staying with a guardian ad litem. A total of three psychologists would testify, one for the state and two for the defense. Dr. Lynn Luna Jones, testifying for the prosecution, would find competency, stating that although the child was below average in some areas of intelligence, she did have an average comprehension of information presented visually or verbally. She said that the victim heard voices, but that no formal diagnosis of psychopathy had ever been made. One of the two defense hired psychologists agreed with all of this, but found her incompetent. The other defense-hired psychologists would also find her incompetent. It's important to note that the prosecution's psychologist met with the suspect only and just one time. The defense likely had greater access, and their psychologist spoke with the child suspect on eight separate occasions. They both also interviewed the mother, grandparents, and guardian ad litem. 
Defense psychologist James Eisenberg stated that he was surprised that the child suspect had not previously been diagnosed with a psychotic disorder, as it would come to light that she'd been diagnosed with ADHD, anxiety, and a mood disorder, and had been being treated with medication since the age of six. The judge would declare the 11-year-old incompetent and order the dismissal of the murder charge delayed for 90 days, pursuant to Ohio law, so family services could determine if she was abused or neglected as to ascertain the root cause of her incompetency. Family services had not had any previous contact with this family, but two separate reports had been made to police by Wycliffe Middle School for violent behavior. Baby Zuri's family found themselves understandably disturbed at the thought of the child being released from custody in a mere 90 days, but the state assured them that more details would follow and not to worry about that possibility too much. Following that 90-day delay, the child suspect's mother lost custody of her 11-year-old daughter, and she was taken into custody of Department of Family Services following a hearing on September 28, 2015. A motion filed at the request of her guardian ad litem asked Lake County Juvenile Court Judge Karen Lawson to order prolonged therapy for the child, not just visits with psychologists, which she had previously said she would grant once the appropriate motion hit her desk. Both mother and daughter were determined to have serious mental health issues. The mother was deemed incompetent to care for the child, whom it had been discovered had previously been institutionalized at more than one mental health facility. Those voices she had been hearing for years evidently still told her to kill herself or others. Last published reports state that Department of Family Services would next determine whether to place the child in foster care or in the care of a family member. And that's where the coverage ends. Current age is 13, whereabouts not known. Rest peacefully, baby Zuri. And now for a word from some of my favorite podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. So, Tafer, what would the elevator pitch for Bears on Film be? Please listen to us. That is just god-awful. Oh, you do better, Billy, if that is your real name. Bears on Film, a podcast where Billy, a large, hairy visual effects artist, and Topher, a larger, hairier cameraman, discuss films they love, films they don't, and those that fall in between. That is better. Thank you. And how much had you had to drink when you came up with the name Bears on Film? Shh. Find us at bearsonfilm.net or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Acast, or anywhere else good podcasts are found. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm the Believer. I'm Cody. I'm the Skeptic. And together we are BSP, the Idiot Syncrasy Files. The podcast where two idiots discuss weird phenomena. This week we're talking about ghosts. I believe in ghosts. Why? There's too much weird stuff in the world for it to be coincidental. See, I don't, because ghosts are souls, and shirts, pants, and jock straps do not have souls. These ghosts should be naked. My jockstrap has a soul. (laughs) Moving on. Join us every week where we talk about cool phenomena ranging from... Skinwalkers to... Simulacra. There you go. Bye! Find us on Google Play, iTunes, and all those other podcasting places. Or visit us at www.bspodphx.com. Part 2. Brooklyn Foss Greenaway. 
chubby-cheeked, three-month-old Brooklyn Foss Greenaway and her two-year-old sister Madison were the lights of their mother's life, living in Clinton, Maine. Working graveyard shift, it was necessary for young mom Nicole Greenaway to enlist the help of co-worker and fellow mother Amanda Huard to keep her daughters overnight. July 7, 2012 was not the first time the girls would stay over, and the same rules applied, so Nicole thought. An adult needed to be present with the girls at all times, and they weren't to be left in the care of Amanda's 10-year-old daughter, Kelly Murphy. She was eager and helpful, but just too young for such monumental responsibility. Apparently, Amanda would break her friend's trust, putting the playpen and two little girls in the 10-year-old's room for the night. At 1.45 a.m. on July 8, 2012, Nicole Greenaway would receive an unimaginable, hysterical call from her babysitter and friend, telling her that baby Brooklyn was not breathing. Following the frantic ride to the hospital, Nicole would learn that her three-month-old had not survived. When she saw Brooklyn later in the morgue, she saw bruises on her tiny cheeks and a black eye. Autopsy results would indicate suffocation and include a toxicology report showing trace levels of the same ADD medication prescribed to 10-year-old Kelly Murphy. Any death of a child under three years of age was automatically investigated in the state of Maine, and Stephen McCausland of the Maine Department of Public Safety said that investigators found troubling evidence even prior to the autopsy. Seven weeks later, on August 30, 2012, Kelly Murphy was charged with manslaughter at the age of 10, making her the youngest person to be charged as such in recent memory, at least the past 30 years. If tried as a juvenile, the maximum sentence was 11 years in juvenile custody until the age of 21. Her attorney, John Martin, had no comment. The state would decide to prosecute Kelly Murphy as a juvenile, and Maine District Court judge would issue a special order barring recording devices from all proceedings. The manslaughter charge alleges homicide as a result of reckless actions or criminal negligence and was considered extremely unusual for a child of 10 years of age. At her first court appearance on October 22, 2012, the 11-year-old defendant looked at the floor and occasionally bit her fingernails, entering a plea of no answer to the charge of juvenile manslaughter in the death of precious three-month-old Brooklyn Foss Greenaway. Her mother said at the time that both Amanda Ward and her daughter, Kelly Murphy, needed to go to jail. They both needed to wake up every morning and look at those bars and realize what they did. According to the state, prosecutors were not pushing for an adult charge, so a jury trial was not a looming threat. A juvenile judge would rule on the case if it were to go to trial, as the intention of the juvenile justice system was to provide care and treatment appropriate to a juvenile not to assess punitive sentences. A competency hearing was ordered and held on March 15, 2013, where Kelly Murphy was found not competent to stand trial at that time, but that she could be found competent in the future once she had aged and matured more. 
The only witness to testify at this trial was Dr. Deborah Bader, the state chief forensic psychologist, who had examined the now 11-year-old and presented a report to the court. Another examination and hearing would be scheduled for 60 days later, but competency questions would be ongoing for the next year. Being found competent to stand trial occurs when the defendant fully comprehends the charges against them, along with how those charges relate to the defense's actions. Finally, after multiple evaluations and hearings, as well as extensive negotiations between the defense and the state, on May 21, 2014, Kelly Murphy, now 12 years old, accepted a proposed plea deal. Accepting responsibility for multiple undisclosed juvenile misdemeanors in exchange for dismissal of the manslaughter charge. She was remanded to custody of the Maine Department of Health and Human Services, presumably to a therapeutic foster home, until the age of 18, in order to participate in an undisclosed juvenile treatment plan to include court supervision and treatment. Once 18, an evaluation will take place by the court to determine whether treatment should continue to age 21. Deputy Attorney General William Stokes said that he was satisfied with the outcome and that it was the best that they could accomplish given the complexities of the case and the age of the child. The goal of this, which has been the goal from the very beginning, he said, is that the juvenile will be subject to conditions and to counseling, supervision, treatment for a lengthy period of time so that the issues that she has can be addressed. She's still very young and has a chance to become a productive member of society. The state of Maine said they could not charge a Mandacuard, the adult babysitter under whose care Nicole Greenaway left her baby girls due to lack of causation. The burden of proof showing negligence was deemed too difficult to show. Nicole Greenaway 100% blamed Kelly's mother, stating that Huard did not do everything she could to prevent her daughter's assault, which occurred with the baby's two-year-old sister in the same room. She didn't check on her, Nicole says, and she left her baby in the care of a known-to-be-unstable 10-year-old child. In fact, on August 10, 2012, the Department of Health and Human Services would issue a scathing agency review notice to Amanda, stating that Brooklyn died due to her neglect. They highlighted the fact that she knew that Kelly had significant behavioral issues, including ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, and attachment disorder, stating that she failed to follow through on her daughter's required treatments, including properly medicating her. The notice blatantly stated that Amanda did not remove the screaming baby from Kelly's care, and that Amanda already knew that Kelly should not be babysitting other children, but it continued to allow her to do so. The reason that the state of Maine is sure she knew this is downright shocking. As it turns out, just three weeks before the tragic and traumatic murder of baby Brooklyn, Health and Human Services had interviewed both Kelly and Amanda in relation to another situation involving eight-month-old Jalen Hopkins, who rents, whose parents rented and resided in the basement of Amanda Ward's house. Baby Jalen had been hospitalized in June of 2012 after her mother came home to find her daughter sweaty, pale, and lethargic. 
Though the baby's father, Chad, was elsewhere in the home at the time, baby Jalen had been left alone playing with 10-year-old Kelly Murphy as she had done before. Kelly had always been eager to offer help, bathing and diapering the baby, and Jalen's parents had no reason not to trust her or any indication that she should be concerned. Shortly after returning home that day in June, Ashley saw her daughter, pale and sweating, begin to seize, and she was rushed to the hospital. The sudden onset of seizures baffled physicians, and she was transferred to Maine Medical Center in Portland. Immediately, it was suspected that some kind of drug interaction was involved, and they pressed Jalen's parents as to what prescriptions were kept in the home. Massive doses of what would be determined to match Kelly Murphy's ADHD medication were found in eight-month-old Jalen's blood specimen, possibly even fatal dosages. There was no way that the infant could have acquired and ingested the medication on her own. Jalen's parents, Amanda Ward, and 10-year-old Kelly Murphy were all interviewed by Health and Human Services and told that Kelly should not be left to care for any other children. A scant three weeks later, Amanda would place a playpen and her co-worker and friend's two-year-old and eight-month-old little daughters in that very child's bedroom with the presumed intention of leaving them under that 10-year-old's care until morning. In July of 2014, it was reported that Nicole Greenaway filed a 13-count civil lawsuit against Amanda and Kelly, citing negligence, suffering, and emotional distress in the death of her angelic infant daughter, Brooklyn, at just eight months old, whose two-year-old sister was present during her assault and suffered nightmares and other psychological after-effects of the traumatic episode she likely witnessed. Greenaway's attorney, Sheldon Tepler, wanted to make sure that the public understood the motivation for this suit, saying that this case is the epitome of a family that needs to see justice. There needs to be some way for their natural feeling of anger to get satisfied, and I see a civil lawsuit as a way to get that justice. When someone comes to me when they've lost a child, it's never really about the money. They've come to me brokenhearted. What they want is justice. By August 15, 2014, it was reported that sheriff's deputies had been unable to physically locate and officially serve Amanda Ward and her daughter with formal notice of the civil suit. Evidently, deputies from both Franklin and Somerset counties had visited her current and previous addresses. Her then-current address of an apartment on Main Street in J. Main was always unoccupied when they came by. A property on Center Road in Fairfield, Maine, listed Ward as the owner, but had been vacant for about two years by the time deputies checked for her there. Civil lawsuits in the state of Maine require an official copy of the complaint to be presented in person to an adult at the defendant's address by a sheriff's deputy to be considered officially served. Since attempts had thus far been unsuccessful, a superior court judge allowed for formal service to be made by placing a notification in the newspaper in the form of an ad to be run for three consecutive weeks. Amanda Ward never acknowledged the ad in the paper. Nicole Greenaway's lawyer Sheldon Tepler's next move was to ask that the Maine Housing Authority, who held the mortgage on the Center Road property, to release information on the homeowner's insurance policy to determine her possible whereabouts, as well as whether or not the policy could pay out the unspecified damages sought in the case. 
the court would rule that Greenaway was indeed entitled to that information. The judge then proclaimed that the ad in the paper served as formal and legal notice of service and issued an order that allowed the mortgage company to foreclose on the property and sell it at auction should Amanda Ward fail to bring the mortgage up to date within the next 90 days following October 10, 2014. Coverage of this case ended here. The outcome of the case and official whereabouts of Amanda Ward are unknown. The current age of Kelly Murphy is 15 and she will remain in custody of Health and Human Services until age 18 when an evaluation by the court will determine if treatment should continue through to her 21st birthday. Sleep with the Angels, Baby Brooklyn. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to check out my podcast buddies on social media and wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Bears on Film for large hairy guys with smashing accents. BSP, the idiosyncrasy files for the believer and the skeptic. And Occulte Veritatis for a bit of the intriguing and the horrifying. See you next week for another installment of Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase.